Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. From Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, which says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. I feel like I could just read that passage of scripture again and again, and that could be my sermon for today. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to be spending a little time there before we get into Philippians. Before we start, um, I would like to continue this posture of worship uh, in and through prayer. And if if you're able and comfortable, I'd just love to ask you guys to just extend your hands just in a palms up in an open way just to um, have a outward expression of an inward posture, right? That we are here to receive from the Lord what he can give us, and we are here to uh, learn from him, and um, it's in and through him that he transforms us. So let's pray. Father, in this moment, we recognize that you're here. In this moment, we recognize that you are the God above all gods. You are the king above all kings. You are set apart. You dwell in inapproachable light, and yet you're here. You're here with us. You're that still, small voice that speaks to us. You call us to yourself. You give us yourself. You love us. You protect us. You guide us. Father, we are so grateful. We are also so unworthy. So in this moment, Lord, I ask that through your atoning work on the cross, you would again remove our sins, remove our guilt, remove our transgression. We know that you are compassionate and gracious. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So we call upon you because you are the only one who can save. Father, as we look at the gospel in your word, I ask that you would illuminate the truths of scripture so that we would be uh, overcome with your, with your light, with your love, with your word. I ask that you would soften our hearts. You would remove our hearts of stone and you would give us a heart of flesh. I ask that you would unstop our ears so that we can hear your voice and praise you. We love you, Father. And we pray all of these things to you through the Son, by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. 
Abraham Joshua Heschel, a uh, theologian and scholar in the 20th century, has a book titled, I Asked for Wonder, and he starts the book with this sentence, God is of no importance unless he is of supreme importance. God is of no importance, that's one way to start a book, isn't it? God is of no importance unless he is of supreme importance. This is, too, this is true in two regards. This is true first individually, right, in our own lives. This is true. God is of no importance unless he is of, of supreme importance. We have, John Calvin says that the heart is an idol-making factory, right? We have idols in our hearts all the time. We have one throne in our hearts and in our lives, and we put other things on top, uh, in front of God in that regard. And if and when we do that, then God becomes of no importance in our lives. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have how many other gods before me? You shall have no other gods before me. God is of no importance unless he is of supreme importance. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 6, you can't serve two masters. You can't do it. Because if you do, you're going to hate one and you're going to love the other. God is of no importance in our lives individually unless he is of supreme importance. This is true individually. This is also going to be true universally. This is going to be true universally, as in there will be a day when everybody recognizes that God is of supreme importance. There will be a day. The scriptures talk about how God is going to win. God, God is going to win. He is going to take the victory. He will be of supreme importance to everybody, whether willingly or unwillingly. Everybody's at one point or another, is going to confess with their mouth and proclaim in their heart and bend the knee to God. The scriptures talk about how his kingdom will not end. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord's Lord of lords. Scriptures talk about how all other gods, all other idols of the world, of our hearts, of the enemy, they'll be shattered before him. They'll just fall before him. God is of no importance unless he is of supreme importance. This, by the way, is why we call it the good news, why we call it the gospel, because we know that God is of supreme importance now, and he will be in the future. It's good news because God alone is on the throne. God alone has the power to save. God is the only one that deserves supreme importance, that will have universal acknowledgement of his lordship and his kingship. Now, when we hear the word gospel, um, good news, right? The word gospel just means good news. Odds are you and I think about the New Testament, the story of Jesus, and that's true, that's there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's, that's a good thing. That, that is true. But the word gospel actually didn't originate in the New Testament at all. The word gospel originated in the Old Testament. What the New Testament authors did is they just took it, its meaning, its theology, its significance, and they just imported it into their, uh, they just gave it a name, the name of Jesus, right? And so that's exactly what Paul is doing in Philippians 2 in the text that we, we just heard. And a, a lot of passages in the Old Testament talk about this gospel as in um, the reign of a king or a kingship. So, for example, David's, uh, sitting, King David in Israel, in the Old Testament, is sitting on his throne, and he's got a couple armies that are uh, doing battle for him, and he's waiting to hear if they won or if they lost. And it says that a person came and he ran, and that day uh, messages were carried by a cross-country runner who would run from city to city, and he would bring, the, we didn't have Twitter back then, so their Twitter was a guy running, and uh, he would run to David, and he literally, it says in Second uh, Kings, it says that he brought the gospel to David. He brought the good news to David. What was it? It was that, hey, your guys won. They didn't lose. That's, that's good news. One of the places, though, that the word gospel is used most prominently is in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, and so, so we're going to get to Philippians in a second, but uh, the passage in Philippians is best understood in light of Isaiah. 
This Christ hymn in Philippians 2 is best understood when we understand the gospel of Isaiah, if you will. So we're going to look at what Isaiah says the gospel is, what Isaiah says who God is, and then we're going to look at Philippians uh, uh, 2. So if you're, you're, already, in, you're already in Isaiah uh, chapter 52, quick summary of Isaiah. Basically, the first half of Isaiah is really uh, not great news. Isaiah is telling the people of Israel, hey, you are going to be judged. You are going to go into exile if you do not turn from your sin. Then, in the middle of Isaiah, they go into exile. Babylon comes, wipes them out. They are now refugee, immigrant, you know, conquered nations in a foreign place. They don't know the language. They don't know anything. And uh, then, after that, Isaiah 40 starts this transition, and it's this message of hope. This transition and this message of hope where in Isaiah 40, verse 1, it starts with comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And so if you think about where Israel's at in this time, they've been in exile for decades at this point. And what, then if you're conquered by another nation, it means their gods are more powerful than your gods. So these Israelites, after decades and decades of being in Babylon, they're asking themselves, is, is our God more powerful than these gods? Is, our God, is this really how our God is going to say? I thought Yahweh God was, was the only God, but clearly we're, I mean, they're deconstructing their faith at this point. They're, they're asking themselves, are we sure about this God? Because it seems like the Babylonian gods are more powerful because they conquered us. It seems like the Persian gods are more powerful because they conquered us. How could all of this bad stuff be happening if our God is the only God? And it's in this context that Isaiah 40 takes this turn to comfort Comfort my people. And it starts by saying that there is a gospel that is coming. It starts by saying, I, God saying, I hear your doubts. I hear your pain. I hear your cries. And I am going to bring comfort. Uh, I'm going to be in a few passages in Isaiah, but all of them are going to be up on the screen. And then we're going to end in Isaiah 52. But look at this first one, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 9. It says this, Zion, so this is after uh, Isaiah is comforting the people. He says, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, don't be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord, excuse me, the Lord comes with his strength and his power establishes his rule. Those first two lines, there's those two words, good news, underlined. You know what that word is? Gospel. Zion, herald of the gospel, Say this. Jerusalem, herald of the gospel, say this. What are they going to say? Here is your God. Your God is here. Your God is alive. The Lord will win with his strength. The Lord will establish his rule with his power. And notice Lord is in all capital letters. We're going to get back to that in a second. It's the divine name Yahweh. So that's Isaiah 40, verse 9. And so what does it say that the gospel is? Two things. It says that first the gospel is God is on the throne, right? Here is your God. He is going to establish his rule. He's going to establish his reign. And second, it says that the gospel is that God saves his people. Exile in Babylon, slavery uh, is not going to have the final word. God will save his people. So in that verse, we see that the gospel is that God is on the throne and God saves. A few chapters later, Isaiah 45, and again, this will be on the screen. It says this, there is no other God but me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved. Who? All the ends of the earth. 
For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, listen to this, this will sound familiar, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. God is on the throne. Look at how many times it says, there is no other God but me. There is no one except me. Turn to me. There is no other. By myself I have sworn. What is it saying? It's saying God is the only God above all gods. God is on the throne. And then it's also saying that everybody, a few verses earlier, it says that God will redeem Israel with an everlasting salvation. And then the result of God's redeeming work of his people, what's going to happen? All the ends of the earth are going to turn to the Lord and say, you are God above all gods. God is on the throne. God saves. That's the gospel according to Isaiah 45. Final passage in Isaiah that we're going to look at is where you guys are already turned to right now, Isaiah chapter 52. <clears throat> and uh, if you look at 52 verse 7, we're going to see the word gospel again. Look at Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald. Herald is underlined. It's just the title for a person who brings the gospel. So in there, it's like, you know, we have the word preach, and then we have the word preacher. There's the word gospel, and then the word, there's the word gospel or gospel bringer. That's what herald means. That, that was, you get the point. Uh, uh, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the gospel bringer who proclaims peace. Peace. What is peace? Everything will be made whole. Nothing will be left hanging. Nothing will be left incomplete or unfulfilled. Everything will be back in its proper place. Who brings news of good things? Guess what that word is? Gospel. Who proclaims salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Look down at verse 9. Be joyful. Rejo Again, I say rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord, all capital letters Lord, has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord, all capital letters Lord, has displayed his holy arm in the sight of who? In the sight of all the nations. And the result is that all of the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The gospel is, is that God is on the throne and God saves. God is on the throne, and God saves. And this goes back exactly to that quote at the beginning. God is of no importance unless he is of supreme importance. If he is not of supreme importance, then he is not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible demands supreme importance. And the God of the Bible is the only one who deserves supreme importance. Now, before we continue... In Isaiah 52 and 53, I've mentioned the word Lord in all capital letters a few times. In our Bibles, um, the word Lord, if it's in all capital letters, it represents the divine name Yahweh. Now, God only has one name. He has a lot of titles. He only has one name, and it's Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. He revealed himself to Moses, and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. And what does he reveal about that name? A God compassionate a God gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast covenant loyal love, a God who will bring that covenant loyal love to thousand generations. He will forgive iniquity. He will forgive pardon. He will forgive sin. 
That is who the Lord is. And this personal name of God, Yahweh, is spelled with four letters, Y-H-W-H, and it's actually so holy that Jewish tradition, they did two things with it. One, they never wrote it out. They never wrote out the name Yahweh. They never wrote out those four letters, Yahweh. They, they instead would write the first letter Y, and then they would just write a bunch of X's to represent the rest of the name. It's so holy, they couldn't even write it out. It's also so holy that they didn't say it out loud. They never said, even if you meet a Jewish person today, they will not say Yahweh. They'll say one of two things. They'll say Adonai, which means Lord, or they will say the name above all names. It's so holy that Jewish people don't say, and even it's so holy that in our Bibles, we don't translate it Yahweh. We translate it Lord in all capital letters. So this, the, if Yahweh equals Lord, they, they say two things. They say Yahweh is Adonai, or they say Yahweh is the name above every name. So if we go back to what the gospel was, God is on the throne and God saves, and we supply Yahweh, the divine, personal, revelatory God, what does that give us? That means that Yahweh is the only one on the throne. And Yahweh is the only one that saves. The next question naturally is how? How will Yahweh save his people? How will Yahweh save his people with an everlasting salvation so that all the ends of the earth will recognize and acknowledge that Yahweh is the God above all gods? Look at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. The first three words, see my servant. How is God going to save? How is Yahweh going to save my servant? What's going to happen? Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised. He will be lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. And then what the rest of this chapter in chapter 53 go on to describe is how this, how this servant's going to be raised, how he's going to be exalted. And it says that the servant, by, by saving, he's actually going to suffer. The servant will be disfigured. The servant will sprinkle the nations with his blood, thereby saving them. The servant is also going to shut the mouths of kings. The servant is going to be in the form of humanity. He's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected by men. He will bear the sickness. He will carry the pains. He will be struck by God and afflicted. He will be pierced because of our rebellion. He will be crushed because of our iniquities. All of the people will be healed by this servant's wounds. He will be led to slaughter like a lamb. The way that Yahweh is going to show his salvation is by this suffering servant. It doesn't end there. Look at chapter 53, verse 12. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 12. Therefore, this is after the description of, of how this servant is going to suffer. Therefore, in light of all of this stuff that the servant is going to suffer, what's going to happen? I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as spoil. Because why? He willingly submitted to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sin of many and interceded. For the rebels, because he willingly submitted him, himself to the point of death, therefore God exalted him, God lifted him up, God gave him salvation, and every this is how God saves the world. Right here in Isaiah 52, God is going to save 
people. God is the only one on the throne. He's going to save people by his suffering servant who will willingly submit himself to death to bear the sins of many. And then because of that, God is going to exalt him. Now, the next question is, who? Who is this servant? Because if you asked Isaiah's contemporaries, or you asked Paul before he met the servant, what they would say is that Yahweh is going to send somebody like a, a, a David. He's going to send somebody like a Moses. He's going to send somebody like a prophet. He's going to send somebody who's going to do his bidding and then come back to him, and, and, and that'll be good. We'll worship Yahweh. What they did not expect is that he would send himself. What they did not expect is that it wasn't just that Yahweh was going to send somebody. It was that Yahweh himself was going to be the one to suffer. And this is exactly, exactly the background of what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. Turn to Philippians 2 with me, and we're going to look at this Christ hymn, this Christ poem together. Paul's talking to the Philippians, adopt the same attitude as that of the King Jesus, as that of Christ Jesus. Have the same way of thinking, have the same mentality, have the same posture. Also, this is a command, this is a plural command, as in not just you individually have this in your own mind, in your own private life, you guys, as a church, have this same posture. What is the posture? Verse 6, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. The form of God. What is the form of God? It's the status of God. It's the dignity of God. It's the, it's the reputation of God. This word is used to define uh, when you wore a cloak, your status, what, your, your clothes determined your status. So people would see what status you had, where you are, were in the hierarchy of society based on what you wore. This is saying that God's status, Christ's status was that of God. He was very God of very God. Omnipotent. Preeminent. Creator of the world, filled with infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge, authority of the, the powers, the principalities, the forces. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's before all things. In Jesus, all things hold together. He's the head of the church. He's in all things. He's through all things. All things are for him. He's the fullness of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact expression of God's nature, of God's character. He's the sustainer of all things by what? His word. He's the purifier of sins. He's superior to the angels. He's the light of the world. When you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. John says that he's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door of the sheep. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life. He is the true vine, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in the new creation, we will not need a sun anymore to be able to have light. It will be Jesus' presence himself that will be so glorious that it lights up the entire cosmos. That person with that status did not use that as something to say, I'm above that, I'm going to send somebody else to do that work. I don't want to do that right now. Somebody else can. I'm just going to send another, another guy like Moses, another guy like David, another guy like Isaiah. No. Instead, what did he do? Verse 7, he emptied himself emptied himself. 
He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Okay, we saw what? That he was in the form of God earlier, and now he's in the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. First thing that Jesus did in verse 7 is that he emptied himself. I recently just heard a testimony by this woman, and she said that when she, she realized she needed to empty herself of herself so that she can be filled with God. How beautiful is that? And guess who that follows the pattern of? Jesus. Jesus is a self emptying God. Jesus is a God, God is a God, who takes on a pattern of downward mobility, of self-emptying, of putting the needs of others above the needs of himself. And look what it says, by assuming the form of a servant as opposed to the form of God, the form of a servant, where have you seen the word servant before? Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is a word that means slaves. As in, Jesus didn't just come as a man. Jesus came as the least of these. Jesus came as a man, a slave, as in he is not going to serve, or, uh, to, to be served, but he rather is coming to serve. Slaves were not viewed as people. They were viewed as property. They did the bidding of those to whom they reported to. Jesus is, in this passage, he's saying that Jesus came to do the bidding of someone, of, of God himself, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, the second thing that Jesus did in verse 8 is he humbled himself. He humbled himself. First thing that Jesus does is he empties himself. The second thing that Jesus does is he humbles himself. The word here is actually probably more like humiliated. Humiliated. We avoid humiliation at all costs. Yet Jesus is a self-emptying, self-humbling God. How did he humble himself? By becoming obedient. It takes humility to obey. It takes a lot of humility to obey things that you don't want to do. It takes a lot of humility to obey when you don't feel like it. It takes a lot of humility to obey when a command is so strong and so powerful that it's going to force you to give up your life. Yet Jesus said, I'm going to do it. Self-humbling God. To the point of what? To the point of death. And then it's almost as if Paul interrupts himself here and exclaims, even death on a cross. It's not just a death. It's a death on a cross. The cross was vulgar. It was embarrassing. It was actually illegal for Roman citizens to be crucified. It eventually got the nickname slave death. If you said, oh, there's a slave death going on, that means there would be a crucifixion because the crucifixion wasn't just a, a, a death of a guilty person. It was the death of a slave. Cicero, who's a Roman lawyer and scholar, says that he lived 100 to 150 years before Jesus, and he says this. He's a very powerful petition, or politician. He said, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person, as in the mouth, speaking of a Roman citizen, but also his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. This is Rome. This is the Roman culture. And who is Paul writing to? Philippi. What is Philippi? A Roman colony, very heavy nationalistic pride there. So when you hear Paul say, even death on a cross, you would hear an audible gasp. We don't talk about a cross. That's too embarrassing. That's too humil. That's a slave death. Family members and friends wouldn't even go to their own relatives' crucifixion because if you were seen supporting somebody on a cross, your entire family would be shamed. Might lose your job, might lose your status, might lose your friends. That's the death that Jesus had. 
even death on a cross. Verse 9, he keeps going. For this reason, for this reason, does this remind you of Isaiah 52? That the, the, the suffering servant emptied himself to death, and then for this reason, God exalted him. Look at this, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him what? Gave him the name above every name. Does that sound familiar? According to our scriptures, what is the name that is above every name? It's the personal, divine name, Yahweh. It's the Yahweh who alone saves his people, who alone saves the people from their sins, who alone is compassionate, gracious, not demanding, slow to anger, not not just a little bit of love and compassion, but abounding in compassionate love. And now, Jesus has this name. God has given Jesus this name above every name. Let's look at verse 10, and we're going to clarify something real quick here in verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus. Now, this is a, um, it, it seems, it can seem at first glance, well, this is the name Jesus, the name comma Jesus, but that's not actually what's going on here. What's going on is this is a, the grammar here is possessive, as in it's the name that Jesus possesses, the name of Jesus. So if you say to me, well, that's the car of Parker, we don't talk like that, that's weird, but that's the car of Parker. What does that mean? Well, that means it's the car that belongs to Parker. It's Parker's car. It's the possessive. That's the same thing that's going on here. It's not the name Jesus, it's the name of Jesus. It's the name that Jesus possesses. It's the name that Jesus was given. It's the name that is above every other name. And what's the result of this name that's going to be given to him? Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul is activating two definitions here. One, he's activating and, and he's saying this would be heard as a polemic against the Roman um, um, vernacular of Caesar is Lord or Nero is Lord or whoever is Lord. That was said in Rome, Caesar is Lord. It's kind of like long live the king or the queen or whatever. Like that would be said there. So what Paul, the first thing that Paul's doing on a surface level is he's saying Caesar's not in charge. Jesus is in charge. It might feel like that with persecution. It might seem like that in one way, but Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. But second, and most significantly, what did we just learn about who, Yah- who, who the Lord is in the Old Testament? The Lord is the God above all gods. The Lord is the king above all kings. The Lord alone can save. The Lord alone is Yahweh, this personal God who loves his people and his everlasting salvation of his people will bring every tribe, every tongue, every language to fall down and worship him. And he is saying, Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh did not just send some guy to do his bidding like he did with Moses, like he did with David, like he did with Elijah, like he did with all these other prophets. What he did himself is that he adopted our form. He adopted the form of a slave, of a servant. Yahweh came down in the person of Jesus who never compromised his divinity and never compromised his humanity. And he said, because of my willing submission to the point of death, I'm going to be exalted and I'm actually going to be Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if Jesus Christ is Lord, what does that mean about the gospel 
that we talked about earlier. Jesus is on the throne. And Jesus alone can save. Interestingly, the first expression of the gospel in the early church was this first sentence, Jesus is Lord. We have a lot of ways to define gospel, but church tradition and church history tells us there's one sentence. If you could boil it down to one sentence and you define the words correctly, that one sentence is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. He humbled himself. He emptied himself to death. A sinner's death, a slave's death, the scum of the earth. And because of his obedience to the Father and because of his love for humanity, he didn't stay there. He was exalted. He was high and lifted up. And he was given the name above every name. The name Yahweh. The name Lord. So that God would be glorified, not just for his chosen people, but God would be glorified among the nations. And guys, there's going to be a day. When you're going to see Billions of people across all tribes, different languages, different backgrounds, different ages, and they're going to be singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty. He was, he is, and he is to come. Jesus is that king. Jesus is Lord. He is on the throne. He's on the throne of our hearts, and he, is, he will be on the throne for everybody to see one day because Jesus alone can save. Jesus alone can save people from their sins, can save people from their slavery to sin can transform a life, can make a human live how they're fully supposed to live. Jesus is Lord. So what does that mean for us? What's the practical application? Well, that was last week's text, and that's going to be next week's text. But today, our application is simple. Worship Jesus. Look to Jesus and live. Contemplate his glory, contemplate his humiliation, contemplate his form of God, contemplate his form of a servant, and rejoice. In Isaiah, it said, rejoice, our God saves. In Philippians, it says, rejoice, again I'll say it, rejoice. And I think it's, I, I, when, we, when we look at the communion table, communion used to be called the Eucharist. Well, it's still called the Eucharist in some traditions today. Eucharist is just a Greek word that means thanksgiving, which means what? The communion table is a time where we thank God and we thank Jesus for his body broken for us and for his blood shed for us. So our application is look to Jesus and live.
Our application is Jesus is Lord. Jesus alone can save. Next week we're going to continue and see what that means as we play it out together. But, I mean, with a message so powerful as that, our lives look different. We are now filled with that light of the world. But right now, I want to I take a moment. I'm going to pray, and I want to take a moment and reflect on the communion table and remember what its name means. Its name means thanksgiving. So I'm going to pray, and then when I'm done praying, you guys can come up and take the elements and sit down, and then I'll lead us in communion shortly after. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.